Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. So David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, now we had a brief discussion before and I've really been looking forward to having the chance to pick your brain on this stuff, both being like uh, having a bachelor, a master and a PhD in neurobiology and then doing a medical degree as well to be a medical doctor. Like how did, how did all this come about? You know, I just, um, um, at some point in high school, I, I went from being sort of, a, uh, you know, a... Um, kind of a dopey, a dopey troublemaking kid uh, who liked to pull pranks and just have fun to, I got uh, intellectually very stimulated. Um, and um, I think uh, from then on, I just loved learning. I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, inhale books quick enough. And I, I was very, I actually got my, my, my entry point into all this was, uh, the issues of um, time and quantum physics and consciousness. And uh, so to me, going to school was, um, you know, it was, uh, was just, it was like, I couldn't think of any, doing anything better, making, making, you know, making your brain grow stronger. So it was all, um, uh, it, 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 it's, people tell me, you know, they couldn't wait to get out of school. And I was like, you know, I just, uh, I look for excuses to stay in school and, and, and learn more. So I guess it's people, different people of different kind of uh, uh, pleasures. That's fantastic. And how, how did you learn about ketamine and transcranial magnetic stimulation, if I'm pronouncing it right? Like how did yeah. you go from like, yeah, the education and being like, okay, there's something interesting here. Well, you know, um, uh, I decided uh, uh, to go into um, psychiatry because I was fascinated with the mind. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I, when I, I was at um, University of California, San Diego, and as a, as a faculty member there, professor, you know, uh, uh, my kind of uh, job was to treat people with very uh, severe mental illness and and I also was doing research. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was uh, I was a researcher, and I had a lab uh, where we were doing la uh, studies, basic stu studies, and uh, uh, with animals, looking for new treatments, and and doing tr clinical trials with patients. And generally, I was um, I was disappointed. I, I would say I was disappointed with with uh, my field um, because here we had this. Um, you know, incredible uh, uh, societal problem of mental illness, and it was growing in prevalence. I think today the uh, the World Health Organization uh, ranks um, depression as the number one source of uh, of disability globally. It's kind of risen over the years. So we had this it had this remarkable. Um, uh, you know, medical problem, and uh, I saw people suffering with with depression, and with uh, schizophrenia and OCD, and I was really disappointed that the tools we had were didn't seem up to the challenge. You know, I felt like I was, 
I was, I was, uh, you know, on the front line trying to fight a war against a, a very powerful enemy, but I was, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I had a fork or something. <laughs> I don't know. It was just didn't seem right. And at the same time, I was also looking at what uh, other specialties were accomplishing. Um, and I was seeing people, you know, go to orthopedic surgeons and get a knee replaced. And in a few weeks, you know, we're like, good as new. And so mm. I was a little en envious of this, you know? Um, and, and it was interesting because the science was, was great as brain sciences was flourishing. You know, we were, we were developing um, all these powerful ways of looking at the brain and, and, and seeing how it's working, but we weren't really translating it into uh, new treatments. The, the medications that we had, the conventional medications um, you know, really didn't differ much, and it's true to this day, didn't differ much um, in their mechanism of action from the very first ones that came out in the 60s, which were discovered by serendipity. Um, so, yeah, they've, got, they, they ha this, uh, they, they've, they've changed in some, in some ways. They're, they have less side effects. But, but in terms of their mechanism of action, um, um, they... Uh, haven't really evolved much. And it was, uh, in fact, there was a very famous um, um, or well-known editorial in the New York Times by a psychiatrist named Robert Friedman. I think it was around 2011. And he was talking about the crisis in psychiatry uh, from the lack of um, uh, new medications you know, being developed, new treatments being developed. And uh, a lot of companies, pharmaceutical companies, were actually closing their their cns divisions because they were just not able to come up with anything new you know the you know uh, uh, drugs are good for a while while they're on patent for a pharmaceutical companies once they go off patent and there's a generic one it's it doesn't it, it doesn't make a whole lot of business sense to develop a new one because you know the insurance companies will will want the patient to go first go with the older one if it's essentially the same so there's there was a need to develop something first in its class new that um you know can be a new source of revenue and and companies were spending millions trying to look at new targets new 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 um br uh, targets in the brain that would bring better treatments and they were just flopping so they were kind of withdrawing and going looking at in other areas um so we were stuck in the mud you know we we, we didn't see anything down the horizon and then a couple things happened that were uh i, I saw i kind of I, I i i i sensed might be they didn't seem very like very much at the time but i sensed could be the beginnings of sort of uh, something really important if they if they were you know, it were to evolve uh, as promising as they were. Um, you know, one of them was the, um, the, the development, which I was tracking, of this um, uh, treat, new treatment approach called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is one, uh, 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 you know, one approach in a bigger, uh, let's say, field of uh, a treatment called neuromodulation, the idea of modulating the brain activity especially non-invasively, you know? So, uh, so TMS uh, is this, the, the, the idea behind TMS is the ability to selectively target areas of the brain that we have learned are uh, not functioning um, optimally 
uh, um, in a certain disease, and there, and each disease would have different areas of of. For example, in depression, one of the one of the common areas that we see uh, underactive is in, on the left side towards the front, left prefrontal cortex, and we know that plays an important role in a lot of things, like regulating mood, and it's connected to some of the deeper emotional centers, like the pleasure center. So. Uh, you know, TMS is this um, tool that allows us to target that area very selectively and stimulate it, do like physical therapy for that area and uh, over time strengthen and correct it. Whereas, you know, previously we were, we were doing this in a very, um, let's say, crude way by taking a pill, uh, dropping it into our stomachs. It, it gets absorbed throughout the blood circulation, so it affects you know, uh, all the um, uh, organs the, that have receptors for that because a lot of the chemicals, uh, neurotransmitters in the brain also exist in the, in the body. So you get these side effects and then it, it, it crosses over into the brain and it basically, you know, goes everywhere in the brain causing effects that we're not necessarily wanting all to kind of change firing uh, 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 of, the, of the neurons, the brain cells in a particular area. And we have 84 billion uh, brain cells that are always firing and talking to each other, but they're regulated by these chemicals. So it's kind of a very indirect way, and you can understand why that approach would be um, not always so effective. And a lot of people just didn't, you know, they would try one, two, three, four uh, combinations as, as well of medications, and, and they none of them were helping. So there's a big for many people, they did help, but there was a large proportion of people, at least at least a third uh, got no benefit. And many of the other two thirds got some benefit, but not, but, you know, partial. So there's a lot of people who just weren't benefiting. So here we had this, uh, this technology that, um, that was able to kind of go right to the target mm -hmm. and, and exercise it and very few side effects. So I was, I was tracking that in 2008, the FDA approved the first device to do that and i kind of like jumped on it and i kind of spoke to my uh you know the, the chair of our department and i convinced him that we must uh we must you know uh, get get one of these if we're to continue to be like an academic uh leader you know set, uh, you know a kind of a progressive um uh you know um department of psychiatry at the time he <laughs> wasn't very convinced he thought it was sort of some some sort of uh uh, you know, esoteric treatment that wasn't really going to pan out. Um, and basically, so, TMS sends electric current into the brain, right? So stimulates. So it actually sends uh, it sends a pulsing magnetic field. You know, so um, so there's uh, there's uh, pr pr principles of uh, physics that go back to the uh, late 18th century that were discovered, uh, that, uh, you know, if, if you have a pulsing magnetic field on and off, on and off, uh, anywhere in proximity to something that can conduct electricity, you will induce current in that. So that's how kind of generators work. They, they rotate, uh, you know, uh, uh you know, what wrapped wire, which creates a magnetic field around something and induce a current in it. So, so basically it's just a, uh, pulsing magnetic field that 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 will cause uh, the uh, a select number of brain cells in its pathway to fire so what we're doing is we are making those brain cells do what they normally do but aren't doing it enough and the analogy i give to people is uh, imagine you you know you 
were in some sort of, um, you had some sort of, uh, 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 let's say, a sports accident and you tore your shoulder, let's say, your rot rotator cuff, and you had to go to surgery and you were in a cast, and, and, and basically, you know, you had no strength or, or, or good range of motion. So that part of, you, that part of your body now is, is really um, uh, underperforming. So you go to a physical therapist and they make you do the kinds of exercises that that, that part of those muscles would normally do. And they make you do it over and over again. And um, they're kind of, you wouldn't probably be doing it on your own. You probably avoid this kind of thing, but they kind of, and they teach you the right way to do it. And it's a slow process, but then you, you know, you, you strengthen it and you, you have full recovery. So that's sort of what TMS is like, a, like a physical trainer for the, for, for the area of the brains that we choose to stimulate. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about it, the same principle can be applied to different diseases. It's just different, uh, uh, different areas of the brain. So now in the in america tms has now uh, become approved for ocd obsessive compulsive disorder and more recently it's uh, been approved for um a smoking addiction just um within the last year and each of these uh involves targeting different circuits of the brain that we that were selected because research has shown that those uh, areas of the brain are involved in those symptoms those conditions and um and each of those and we can and we and the other interesting thing is we can actually turn up or turn down the activity of certain areas so sometimes in a certain disease there's excessive activity uh, in an area and uh, uh and in other diseases certain areas might have lower activity so i mentioned the brain uh, on the left prefrontal cortex we generally think is underactive in depression and so we stimulate it to over time be more active but let's say we were treating uh voices uh that that people with schizophrenia here well we uh, the evidence suggests that that might be due to overactivity or the parts of the the brain uh, firing when they shouldn't be firing in the auditory areas. So sort of the same areas that uh, are making you able to hear my voice right now um, might be overactive in somebody with schizophrenia when there's nobody talking to them. Mm. So uh, the, the, the best protocols for voices, uh, uh, auditory hallucinations uh, is targeting those auditory areas, but using a frequency of, of, of pulsing a magnet that over time is going to lower it. So it's just a, it's just a, um, a, a neat, <laughs> a neat tool that allows us to become much more sophisticated in, in how we are, uh, you know, changing the brain than let's say, you know, conventional medication, which are non-selective. So we can, you know, we can choose the area, and we can choose what we do to that area based on how how uh, how the abnormal uh, abnormality is. And so, you know, uh, could we say without oversimplifying it? But just what I'm hearing is kind of like what you said with working out. You could potentially work out a specific exercise. You do biceps. That's the part of the brain that needs to be exercised a bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so you work that out, like you lift some weights there, or you want the biceps to be more flexible meaning that you need to down-regulate it a bit, then you do some stretching again, or otherwise you could take a, a growth hormone that affects the entire body, but you don't have the same control over those specific parts, which is what you do with normal antidepressants. And that can have a bunch of side effects because 
it doesn't just affect the the, the place where you have the biggest challenge. Could that be kind That's of That's right. That's a good analogy. And I would add that it's not just that it's not it affects everything, but it also even in the areas that that it is trying to correct, it's only working indirectly because the mm. firing you know, we've moved, we've actually moved away from the idea of mental illness being a chemical imbalance, which the, the truth is, although, you, you, you know, you still hear people in the public uh, think of it that way. The truth is a little dirty secret, if you will, in neurosciences, that there's, there's, uh, that's been debunked, you know, we've, we've not been able to find uh, consistent uh, abnormalities in these neurotransmitters in people with depression. A lot of people, a lot of their patients will come to me and say, Things like, you know, I think, uh, you know, my depression is, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I take I take this supplement that's supposed to raise serotonin, and and I've heard that you know low serotonin causes depression. Well, the truth is, um, we don't see differences in the brains of serotonin levels in people with depression and people who are not depressed. Furthermore, we have the ability to actually uh, deplete serotonin from healthy people you know there 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 are ways to do that by giving them uh uh um uh, uh, elixirs to drink that have these large neutral amino acids it'll suck out all the serotonin out of their uh their brain and their uh central nervous system and and they don't become depressed you know and then the third piece of evidence that kind of debunked this whole idea that you have low serotonin uh, and you're depressed so therefore you have you take these drugs that uh, boost serotonin the third piece of evidence was that these drugs like the prozac and and so forth the, the ssris that uh, they they will increase serotonin levels in the brain uh, you know, uh, within hours, but people don't, their depression doesn't get better within hours, it's weeks. So we are quite sure that this notion of, you know, just low levels of serotonin or dopamine is not as simple as that. We know that for a fact. And, um, uh, but I think the, it's such a compelling story mm. that, that you still hear that, um, we're mo which much more shifted towards, the firing pattern and something called neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to change, uh, adapt to uh, different situations and to learn. And, um, and um, uh, you know, that being more of the uh, core function of the brain and also when things go wrong, where, where, where those are. So, so, David, um, I'm going to have to ask some follow-up questions for that because that's, <laughs> uh, it's been something that's been, um, what would you say, something I haven't been able to understand. I've been curious about because there's so many things when we talk about health, we say like, this is how it is. And often like, how do we know that that's the way? So basically what you're saying, because I heard the story that is serotonin, that's often low, and then we need to boost that. But I also learned that around 80% of the serotonin production comes from the stomach, from the gut. I heard those numbers, something like that. So basically you can work a lot more on that instead of just giving people pills. But you, I think you kind of answered similar my question that I've had for years is like, how do we know that it's a problem with serotonin up in the brain? Like how do we get to that conclusion that people have too low serotonin levels in their brain and thereby that's the reason for depression because that's what you're saying. That's not really the reason. So I'm like, how do we get to that conclusion in the first place? Great, great question. Um, it's one of those, um, it's a nice, it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, 
So um, it, it basically, like a lot of things in psychiatry, and I think also in medicine, we, uh, we, we made a discovery about something that helps a disease. Mm -hmm. You know, something by accident we found, oh, helps this disease. And then we said, what is, well, what does that thing do? And we find that this thing, you know, increases, you know, X in the body. And then we, so we have a theory and it makes complete sense. The theory is, well, maybe the disease is a lack of that X. But that's just a theory, and then it has to be uh, proven. So the story behind antidepressants is fascinating. Uh, in the in in the in the uh, you know earlier part of the twentieth uh, uh, century, um, tuberculosis was you know the COVID of its time. Um, you know, and um, in um, certainly at least in in, in uh, North America, they had these. Uh, sanit they call them sanatoriums, where, where people who were infected with tuberculosis would be sequestered, you know, uh, because they're they quarantined. And, um, and they introduced this drug, uh, one, really the first effective drug, um, it, it called um, ipronizid, and it's uh, very similar to the drug isoniazid that we still is the mainstay of treating tuberculosis. And ipronizid was found to be effective for tuberculosis, so they kind of started to uh, uh, use it in these sanatoriums. And you can imagine these are pretty miserable places with people very, a lot of depression and, uh, and, and, and ill patients. And what they discovered was uh, not only was it helping with tuberculosis, but there was a change in the mental status of people. People were perking up and, um, and some people actually became manic, which is something we know that um, any, any drug that has mood elevating properties in a certain percentage of people are going to flip them into, if they have that uh, vulnerability into mania, which is kind of the, let's say, the alter ego of, uh, uh, of depression, where people are energized and they're talking fast and they're feeling great. And, and the doctors in the sanitarium were just totally perplexed. I actually uh, um, found the New York Times article describing this, uh, this in, I think it was maybe in 1958 or 1959. Um, and uh, so nobody could understand why is this drug having this side effect? Because up to then, it, it, the idea was, you know, if you're depressed or something, it was much more of a, you know, a psychological issue related to, you know, your childhood and so forth. And it took years of therapy and here's this here's this you know this compound this this chemical that suddenly is changing people's personalities you know so they analyzed it and they found that one of the properties that ipronizid had was that it it blocked an enzyme called monoamine oxidase and monoamine oxidase is the main enzyme in the brain that breaks down these chemicals called monoamines. And there's three, three chemicals that are, you probably heard about them, that are monoamines. Uh, serotonin, noradrenaline, and dopamine. They're very chemically related, and together they're called monoamines. And when they're released into the brain, uh, between brain cells, monoamine oxidase goes and breaks it up, um, and some, and there's another mechanism where they're also sweat. It's uh, it, those that aren't broken down are swept back into the cell and recycled. But but ipronizid blocked monoamines, so it raised the levels of the uh, of the monoamines in the brain because it prevented monoamine oxidase. So so there in the early 60s there was this 
theory is called the monoamine theory of depression, that, that depression is related to low levels of, um, of monoamines because th this, this new treatment that we discovered, which then got, uh, was the basis for antidepressants, like the first antidepressants, uh, because, because these, these antidepressants that, that improve mood, what they do in the brain is they raise monoamines. So that was a very reasonable thing. And then it got focused more on serotonin because there was, you know, uh, they found, we found that you could do the same thing um, in the brain with depression. I mean, treat depression just with drugs that increase serotonin and not the, the dopamine and the noradrenaline. So it's thought to be serotonin. But then this theory has to be converted into a, a scientific fact by by studies and the studies that were done including the ones i just mentioned didn't uh, didn't support it but the idea was so compelling when our brains uh, mads we, we love we uh, we don't like complexity and we like to feel that we understand the world and a good story is very hard to kill mm. so in the in the world of um, neuroscience you couldn't go and talk about you know, low levels of serotonin because you would have been, you know, laughed out of the room. But in the in the public, uh, that story and the media, that story persisted. And I think the pharmaceutical companies also were quite pleased to promote it because it it uh, it, it helped uh, people understand why they need their their medications, which which boost, you know, serotonin. But uh, it's been a lot. It's been many, many decades already that we kind of have put that to rest. That uh, there's just you know the evidence just isn't isn't there now. It's incredible um, how long something of like that can live on. And like you look it up and look like credible sources and so on and referencing it. But like I think that's also the fascinating thing and why I'm so curious about the whole health base in general. Like the things that we take to be truth. That's why my questions are often like, how do we know this to be true? Like, do we have have you proven some kind of casualty or are we still at the correlation? Just like as far as my understanding is, much of the stuff we know about the brain is we know that different parts of the brain lights up. So that means that blood goes to that part. And right. thereby we say that's the part of the brain that is related to this, which makes a lot of logical sense. But right. that's as far as we've come to really prove that that's what happens. Right. I, I, you are spot on and you actually have hit on a... Uh sort of a pet peeve of mine, I hear colleagues uh, will often, you know, uh, go, uh, you know, take, a, take findings and make that last leap and then, you know, talk about something as if it's the actual uh, effect. You know, I know, I know we're going to talk about ketamine. One of the things that people are trying to understand why ketamine, uh, you know, works the way it does. One of the things it does is it, it produces uh, this something called neuro, neurogenesis. It cre you know, it will very rapidly uh, stimulate uh, uh, new brain cells and, and brain cells that exist to create more uh, connections. And that seems like that would be a very good thing, right? And that could be, you know, maybe, maybe that's how it uh, improves depression so, so well. And so I now hear, uh, you know, uh, colleagues, or and certainly uh, uh, well well read patients, will come in and read this because the media will say, you know, uh, ketamine works through neurogenesis. But 
you know, we've, uh, the, the, we've never proven that that's the causal thing. Here's the other problem. Blueberries will do that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as good and healthy as blueberries are, I, we don't see the same kind of dramatic uh, improvements in, um, uh, in depression, uh, you know, so, and, and, um, and also it's not so clear that more uh, connections is always good because we know that a big thing that happens in the development of the human brain is there's something called pruning. You know, we're actually, we're actually born with a lot of connections and, oh, and over time, as far into, even into twenties, we are, we are losing some of those. And that seems to be really important. In fact, some of the diseases are thought to be, um, uh, uh, you know, breakdowns in the pruning process, like autism. Um, they, people with autism have, there's evidence that they have more uh, neuronal connections and they didn't prune as much. So, you know, um, there's, there's our brains, Mars are uh, mad, sorry, is our, uh, our, they, they want to grasp a narrative. You know, we want to, we want to be able to have a quick under, a, a quick, you know, uh, explanation for the world around us so that we can navigate it. And so we gravitate to, to stories, quick stories, but they're often just, just not there. And they lead us down the wrong pathway and uh, it's very hard. And, and what you said about uh, how do we know this is sort of like, that's my mantra in my family. I teach my kids always say, you know, if somebody says something, just say, well, well, how do we know that? And mm. how, why, and what, you know, you said that like, what's like, where did you come to believe that, you know, um, and it annoys, it annoys people, but, but it's really important, you know, it's really mm -hmm. important. Otherwise we, you know, we just go down these, uh, these, uh, um, pathways that the, 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 the you know, the, the population is, you know, is, is going to, and how many times in science have we, have we been told one thing and then suddenly, you know, we had to, we had to, uh, you know, do a 180 because they took a little bit of a closer look at the science and it wasn't true. I'm super curious about what things that we today in 2021 believe to be true, that we in 2030 are going to be laughing at. Just oh. like the brain was like not going to be able to change at all after you became an adult. Right. Uh, the scientific fact, uh, meditation that was... Eastern weird stuff, people like they were right. out of their mind. And now we're like, yeah, of course. And like, we can actually see it now with our way of like monitoring things. Right. And Absolutely. So I, always, I try and ask as well in my podcast, because I'm perfectly fine with that. We don't know everything, but just kind of understanding what's the hypothesis that makes us believe this to be true. So I interviewed a really interesting gentleman the, the other day, but um, he couldn't explain the hypothesis for why it, would be true so i'm not going to publish the episode because simply like then we need to have some kind of hypothesis to be like see we see these results we haven't been able to prove it but this is our hypothesis that we believe in some years potentially we can test or something like that right right and you know in in medicine um the there's nothing wrong with saying look um we don't know how it works but we know it works because it's much easier to prove something works it's very simple. You test it. You test it against the placebo or something, and there's very. Um, but the mechanism uh, could could take years down the road, and um, and that's been true for for many many things in um, in science. And we have to be comfortable with that. 
Yeah. Because it's, 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 I think, less uh, damaging to admit we really don't know than it is to think we know and, and, and uh, find out that we were wrong and we, and we went down the wrong road and we wasted a lot of time. I think, you know, the doctors don't like to, to not, be, not know and tell their patients they don't know, you know? Yeah. And, um, but I think that's and, a, such an honest answer, just like, actually, we don't know why it works, but we've tested it on so many people. We see people that are getting this. It seems like it seems to work for them, um, and we haven't been able to identify a lot of side effects that wouldn't be worth it. So that's right. why that's our best bet right now. That's right. There's also a, a, a psychological phenomena uh, uh, that goes uh, by an eponymic name that I can't think of now. That when you start to uh, when you get educated about something initially you you believe you know a lot more than you than you actually do and then uh, over time as you get uh, if you get really deeper into it you realize uh, your 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 level of confidence in what you know actually goes down and then if you keep going it'll go back up so i think a lot of people who uh, you know when you're in the scientific community and everything has to be everything is looked at with a critical eye and every time you write something in a paper, they're going to, you know, they're going to scrutinize whether the statement was too strong based on the mm -hmm. data. We become very, we're very conservative. We, ha we talk in, in certain ways, you know, say, you know, the evidence, uh, you know, suggests or, you know, but we don't say this is it. And, and, but I think w when you talk, when you get to the clinician um, who, who um, doesn't have that culture knows a little bit about this, the, the papers, but, you know, needs to, needs to work in the world and, and have answers. And they will, they will t have a tendency to uh, take, take uh, partial knowledge and kind of fill in the gap because it's just easier mm -hmm. when a patient says, so uh, how does this work? You say, oh, well, it, you know, it increases serotonin <laughs> yeah. in the brain. <laughs> uh, so we have to be careful about that. Yeah. But of course, there is also just like um, imperial evidence, like as practitioners that are seeing different things and seeing patterns and and testing things out. And they don't always have the perfect computer brain to say like this, but they've seen stuff before. And like there's something here they start to recognize in that human path that sees potentially something they couldn't say like these are these five parameters. But this is what what seems to be potentially right. something that could work for you, right? Exactly. But so going back to uh, TMS, um, how do we use that today? And like, what are some of the results that we're seeing now that we kind of understand part of the theory behind like how it works? What are, what are the results that we're seeing today? Like, how are we using it? Yeah. So um, the, the use of TMS is, is really growing. I, I, you know, um, and by the way, what's interesting about TMS is probably one of the first treatments that um, uh, that I can think of, maybe I mean I can't think of another one that was actually designed, as opposed to you know we we discovered by accident, like I'm telling you about the antidepressants and the antipsychotics were found that way and the mood stabilizers were found that way. But with TMS, it was really like okay, you know this is what's going on in the brain. We need to fix this. Well, we know from physics um, that 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 if we you know build a machine that will do that. And then we tested it and it seemed to work. So today, um, at least in the United States, and I think that I don't think it's uh, as prevalent as it is in, in Europe, but it, today TMS is really becoming 
another um, uh, you know uh, 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 foot of the of the stool of psychiatry where you know we had one leg uh, 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 the first leg of modern psychiatry I think you know talk therapy which we know changes the brain you know uh, and then it, starting in the uh, early 60s uh, we had uh, medications that were a revolution and uh, and I think um, you know TMS or in a larger sense, neuromodulation, because you mentioned TCDS, that's a, mm. that's another way of affecting the brain. And that does use electrical low, very low electrical current. But again, it's a way of changing, uh, physically changing the activity of the brain non-invasively. So this whole neuromodulation thing is maybe, is, I think we're going to look back and say, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the early two thousands were when that whole third option uh, came into being. So today... Um, neurofeedback. It, Sorry, David, just jumping in. Where is neurofeedback in that spectrum? Because that's measuring your brain waves, and then you get audio um, and visual feedback um, to kind of condition uh, the brain. Is that also in that spectrum? Or? I, I, I would say it's a, it's a form of neuromodulation. Yeah. Um, so today, you asked about, for example, TMS... Um, TMS is is widely used um, if for patients with what we call treatment resistant conditions like treatment resistant depression, especially. So people who have failed um, a couple of medications, depending on the insurance company, some will set it at four medications, some will set it at two. Um, the actual the FDA label is one or more antidepressants that have been uh, failed um, because that's how the studies uh, were done to prove its efficacy. They, they took people. So what's interesting is, you know, this was really positioned as a treatment for patients who failed the, the conventional because I think that people who who were developing it knew that people weren't going to start off with a treatment where they had to go into an office every day uh, for 30 minutes for up to six weeks and insurance wasn't going to start off by paying that. So they, so they took people for of that group who tried and didn't get response to several medications and the efficacy of TMS is when we talk about the efficacy and the numbers, we uh, it's important to note that this is a tougher uh, group of patients, um, uh, a group that we know from studies that if they were just given another antidepressant, their likelihood of benefiting would be very low because we know that after you know two, three medications, the chance that you, a patient will respond to any additional one go down to you know thirteen percent and then lower and lower. So uh, when we see reasonably good numbers, that's impressive because it's a it's a, it's a it, it's you know, selecting the tough group. So today, um, um, insurance companies in the United States widely cover it. Um, the, for example, the VA, which which is the hospitals for 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 uh, veteran military, um, they have you know purchased TMS machines and. They will offer it, and the American Psychiatric Association, you know, puts it in uh, very high in its, uh, you know, um, list of, you know, in fact, it could be first line, yeah. so it could be an option. It's not usually first line because, again, insurance won't cover it. And uh, and how line. high were the numbers in the studies uh, when you said efficacy? Generally speaking, the efficacy, let's say for depression, 
um, in the studies were, you know, uh, 60, between 60 and 70% of people responded, meaning their depression improved at, at least 50%. And about uh, a third of those people completely went into remission, which uh, again, we know compared to what, the alternative of doing another antidepressant was much, much uh, higher. Um, so um, it's not perfect. But um, it is a tool that before uh, it was there, you know, we really had not many options except more medications or going uh, in a in direction that I call going nuclear to do uh, electroconvulsive shock, which is mm. kind of a, uh, you can think of it as, uh, as the first form of uh, neuromodulation, but a very, very, non-selective where you're sending, you know, a, a strong uh, uh, electrical current through the brain to induce a seizure and kind of just reset the brain. So um, that has a lot of side effects and, and we try to avoid that unless it's really a matter of life and death. Um, so now we have TMS and, and ketamine uh, as as well as options for people who aren't getting uh, benefit from the from the first line, and now we now we have OCD, uh, you know, being uh, uh, established by the FDA uh, as an effective smoking cessation. Was which really interesting about the smoking cessation um, indication is that that um, that device targets the, the, the brain areas that are um, been implicated in all the addictions because there's a common common pathways. And, you know, to get approval from the FDA, you can't just do addictions. You have to prove each one. So they, they, they proved um, uh, smoking. Uh, people who are, who are addicted to smoking had much higher rates of improvement when they got the TMS versus a sham, you know, so because in a device you can't do a, plus a pill, a sugar pill, but you have a you have a device that sounds similar and it, it causes a sensation, but is not targeting the area of the brain. So we believe that um, that 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 same protocol um, will be effective for other addictions, um, but we have to prove them one by one to get the approval. And how is it looking with side effects right now? <clears throat> it's great. I mean, it's 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 so much better than uh, the medications because, you know, nothing is going in your body. You have this stimulation that's occurring in this target area, and we have a fairly common side effect of people kind of, you know, getting this um, used to this sensation of this tapping. It's basically, uh, but it's, but it's, what's interesting, it's, it's totally a phantom because there's nothing physically touching them as this electromagnetic, uh, as this pulsing magnetic field, uh, passes through their scalp, it activates those sensory nerves. And, um, with it, so they feel their scalp. They don't feel anything in their brain because the brain doesn't have any sensory nerves. You could cut into the brain and be awake and you wouldn't feel anything. Um, so they have this tapping sensation that takes sometimes a little bit of acclimation, but People within two or three time, two or three sessions get very used to it. Um, and the one, um, you know, strong side effect that is very, very rare um, uh, has, has occurred a countable number of times in the uh, 13 years that it's been out uh, in the United States and the, and the uh, literally millions of treatments that we've done are po possibly the seizure while you're 
while you're getting this treatment, you know, while you're under the, the device for, for those 30 minutes or so. But that, uh, as I said, happens very rarely. And it also, most of the cases when they've been investigated, there's been a reason, you know, patients, you know, uh, uh, might've gone out the night before and really drunk a lot of alcohol and didn't tell the operator or they had a history of seizures or they were put on some new medications that lowered their risk, increased their risk for seizures and the TMS was done. So it's usually something we can avoid if we educate people not to do this and to inform us. So much, much safer than, uh, I would say, um, not necessarily safer, but, but uh, less side effects. Patients mm. are always complaining to me about the side effects of the antidepressants. And so we don't generally see that with, uh, with this. Um, so what's the big thing holding TMS back? Like you have to go to a physician. Would it be possible to have a home device? Ah, yeah. It? Or like, because. Yeah. So uh, I think that's, that's a big part of it. It's a physical, um, it's, it's, it, it's like going to your physical therapist, but you're going every single day, Monday to Friday uh, for six weeks. So, you know, Uh, it's, it's a little bit of, uh, that, that's kind of inconvenient. Um, but they're working on home devices and, um, we are actually, uh, soon going to start a study, uh, of a, uh, a band, um, that's already approved for migraines. It doesn't stimulate the brain, but you wear it at home and it stimulates some of the, uh, nerves, uh, the cranial nerves that feed into the brain. So um, I think what's going to happen was, you know, there's going to be other ways of affecting the brain. There's already um, in, uh, in the States um, um, something called vagal nerve stimulation, which is, was, it, was a treatment that was, that was found to be effective for, for seizures, for epilepsy. And basically there's a pacemaker implanted um, that stimulates the uh, nerve That's the main nerve from our body to our brain, and it stimulates it, and that would control, you know, reduce seizures. And people who had seizures and medications didn't work, but they discovered that a lot of those patients who had depression also got better. So now that is an approved uh, another neuromodulation uh, where we're not directly stimulating the brain like we are with TMS, but we're stimulating the nerves that go into the brain and change the brain that way. So it's a uh, It's just a fascinating, fascinating new new um, uh, chapter in, yeah. uh, in in neuroscience. And when you get the treatment, can you do anything else at the same time, or you just you just have to sit and relax? Or so you'll be interested in this, uh, and that's exactly what we're trying to figure out. So we have people coming every day to our office for at least 30 minutes. Um, And um, we want to leverage that. What else can we do that will... So we're doing a study right now uh, where patients are doing um, CBT in an app mm -hmm. right after the TMS. And, um, and the idea is we know that the TMS... I, I mentioned something called neuroplasticity, the idea that, um, that um, um, the brain um, has, fle has flexibility to make new connections and change and tms kind of enhances that and especially right after a tms session there's um there's a kind of a golden period window. of yeah window maybe of half hour hour where there's particularly good 
uh, neuroplasticity. And so the idea of the, of the study is if we would have people do uh, therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy in that window, it might be uh, might benefit from that from that uh, neuroplastic uh, window. So the study is looking at people who immediately after their TMS session will do the CBT therapy versus sort of several different kind of app controls where it's not CBT. So yeah, I think I think a big um, a big area for for further development of this is 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 how to combine it um, with other things to um, and you know get even better results. And that's uh, something that I think about a lot because I have these patients who, you know, you don't normally have patients coming to your office. You can't usually convince them to come to your office for somebody for, for when they're doing this treatment, they're willing to do it because they know that's, and then you just want to, you know, you want, you want to, you want to use that in some way to, to, to advantage. But that half an hour, can they do anything else at the same time or only like after, or like, can they actually read a book, watch a, Netflix or yep, yep. Uh, uh, they, they are totally, um, um, but you know, after a few sessions, they're completely unaware of the, of the, um, uh, uh, sort of the tapping sensation. There's a tapping sound. And so they'll be they're They're, they're often on their phone. Um, sometimes we see them meditating, you know, I, 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 I go into say hello. And I, I, I just back away because I see that they're kind of like, in a, in a very meditative space. Um, so they can read that we've had patients who've, who've, who've uh, read books and we don't know what's the best thing to do at the time, but I will tell you something really interesting is for the OCD and for the smoking sensation uh, uh, studies, it was discovered that, um, that what we want them to be in is uh, in a state of mind where their symptoms are activated. So, For example, with OCD, we, we find out what each patient's um, um, specific sort of obsessions are. So let's say, you know, we have a patient who it's all about cleanliness and they're, they have to wash their hands and they're very uncomfortable if they touch something. And then we, uh, before each treatment, we actually kind of get them into a, a, an area of moderate discomfort from their OCD because the preliminary studies showed that the TMS works better when they're actively experiencing their symptoms than when they're not. And for the smoking addiction, we, uh, we're really quite cruel, uh, but we, uh, we have people hold a cigarette, smell it, roll it, they can't smoke it. And, uh, <laughs> and so it, it stimulates that, that, that addictive craving. Yeah. And, and then we, <laughs> we do the TMS and zap those areas and, The studies shown that if you do if you do it with or without that, you get benefit both ways, but you get more benefit. Uh, so I think that's fascinating. It's sort of like uh, you know putting the brain in a certain optimal state and then you treat it. You know, so that's uh, I think another cool aspect of what we're learning about the whole uh, you know uh, you know uh, neuromodulation of 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 the brain. Yeah, it's extremely fascinating, David. Yeah. It's an interesting field you're sitting in. I, I feel very, very lucky. <laughs> and, and we didn't even get to ketamine yet. I'm not I sure know. how uh, hard your time is. Um, oh, my goodness. Um, let's do it. Cool. So, David, ketamine, I read a study, uh, I think it was some years ago, 
um, where it had these insane resolve. I think it was with depression or people that were actually, it was people that were suicidal and so on, where they had like ketamine treatment once or twice. And then they were suddenly good. It sounded too good to be true and almost like magic, but like, where are we with that today? Yeah. You know, you're, you're spot on. The first studies that, that came out uh, were small studies and they gave ketamine. Ketamine is a drug that's been around 50 years uh, as an anesthetic, still used as an anesthetic because it's, it's, it's incredibly safe and um, effective. So it's still, still very popular. But uh, uh, in, two, in the year 2000, a paper came out uh, from, out of Yale showing seven people with treatment-resistant depression got infusions um, of ketamine and, um, a, 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 or a, a kind of a placebo. And the, uh, the, uh, during the ketamine uh, phase, these patients had crazy good rates of improvement which again, in that group of people, so it's a tough group. If you get, if you get twenty percent uh, of the people getting their, rid of their depression, that, that's that's good. But this was like seventy percent, I believe, and um, and also what was crazy was uh, that it was fast. And in psychiatry, we generally don't have fast treatments. We you know you know if they are going to work, we say you know you have to wait weeks. But this was like people were feeling it, you know, they, the measurement was at 24 hours, the first measurement. It was already a, a, a very strong separation. Uh, um, and, um, you know, what you said about it being too good true, that was exactly my reaction. I was like, this is too good to be true. And we know in science that, that you know, you can do a small study and get remarkable results. Uh, and often they, I've been, it's, it's, you know, I've been in that position where I've had some uh, done some some studies and they were really remarkable but then uh they just didn't pan out when i tried them again other people tried them it wasn't as it wasn't as as good so we so in science we're we generally are you know skeptical you have to really prove to us something that is so different in terms of its capacity to to do something the, the more the more outlandish the results the more the, the more you have to prove it so I, I really just, I kind of filed it away and I said, um, yeah, probably too good to be true. Uh, six years later, there was a, another study coming out of uh, National Institute of Mental Health where they did the same thing, larger group, and they, believe it or not, they got even better results. So when this paper got published in 2006, I was still honestly kind of skeptical uh, because it was so different than everything. And here's, it's not like it's a brand new um, you know, drug that, 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 that was developed. This is a drug that's, that's been under our nose for 50 years. Uh, but I, I thought that we're in such, we're in such a need for, for something really new and effective that um, I needed to find out really uh, if, uh, and I didn't want to wait another six years for another study. So I, uh, I convinced the powers that be at UCSD, and it wasn't easy. I can tell you, they're very, you know, institutions are very conservative. That uh, th that they should let me give ketamine to to patients with treatment resistant depression. Now, keep in mind, depression is a lot of people think depression is oh well, you're sad, you know, uh, but it's it's more than that. I mean, it, people die, you know. It's uh, 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 there's in 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 the U.S. forty five thousand 
people approximately, depending on fluctuates from year to year, uh, die from suicide. Most of those are from depression, you know, as a result of depression. Uh, people, you know, have just people who, who don't commit suicide often have no quality of life. They're just, they're, they're, they're not productive. They're in bed. They're, you know, they're, they're, they lose family members, uh, you know, they, you know, they, they're just a great impact. So, so we have a lot of people who have this devastating disease and, and, um, the, the treatments we had were not good enough. So, so, uh, there was a rationale to try it because everything we knew about ketamine was that it was safe. Granted, we hadn't given it for depression and we hadn't given it repeatedly, which, you know, it seemed was necessary to get the, for most people to get the effect. So anyway, UCSD, uh, you know, agreed, uh, convinced them. And in 2008, I started uh, giving patients the ketamine because I had to, I had to know for myself whether this is something I should really, um, you know, embrace or move on because I was desperately looking for, for something better than what we had. TMS would come out and that was really exciting, but but there was, we needed more. And, 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 and it was really, um, I saw that this was like nothing I've ever seen in, 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 in my career. And people were just transformed very quickly. And the, uh, over the, 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 the last, um, you know, 15 years, there's been a slew of well-controlled um, uh, studies that have replicated the uh, um, results. And in fact, there's very few studies we that were, n n you know, uh, not positive in ketamine, which mm. is unusual because usually if you like, if you take an antidepressant and you do, you know, four or five studies, uh, you're going to get one that didn't, didn't separate from placebo. But this is a very strong effect. I think there's very few people who don't now in the, even in the establishment, you know, very conservative establishment recognize that ketamine is a breakthrough, um, uh, for, for depression. And then along the way as well, we discovered that it was more than depression. It was PTSD, uh, anxiety, um, OCD. We just published a, a case report of four, patients that we treated with an eating disorder long-term for about a year, you know, their eating disorder and, their, and the depression that goes along with it got better. And um, so I think, I think it's here to stay. It has its limitations and, um, but it is really, really, um, uh, you know, the first new mechanism drug um, in 50 years for psychiatry, and it is uh, really different in that uh, we not only in how effective it is, but like I said, the the, the, the dramatic nature uh, of the improvements that we can see, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, in one, so, you know, sometimes in one treatment, although uh, that's not always the case. And so if people read about that, you know, because if, if some if a, if a journalist is going to uh, you know, um, write about uh, uh, an example. They're going to write about the dramatic example, mm. so that a lot of patients say, you know, expect that it's going to be just their first one. Um, but but it can be, it can be, and that's something we don't uh, see. So um, you know, so today um, I think ketamine is um, is definitely a um, uh, you know a, a brand new important tool. And uh, what, what is particularly good, probably the, the, the lowest hanging fruit, if you will, for 
what it can, what it what it does is uh, uh, improve uh, the the suicidal um, thoughts and urges that people with with severe depression often have, and you know one of the one of the ways it's revolutionized psychiatry is that you know when you have a when you're a psychiatrist and you have a patient that's really struggling with these thoughts you have patients who will drive by we are in san diego there's a bridge you know it's not as famous as the uh, golden gate bridge in san francisco we have the coronado bridge but they'll drive by it you know uh two or three times a week just to play out in their mind, you know, what, to, so, you know, you, we're, you know, you, when you hear, when you hear that, you get very scared for, for a patient, um, knowing, you know, the, the high rates of, uh, the people that, uh, they do commit suicide. And, and, uh, really, you know, when you get to the point where you're, when, when you feel patient is potentially an imminent risk to the, to themselves as psychiatrists, at least in North America, you know, the the we are, one of the few options we have is to is to hospitalize them. Mm. A lot of times they don't want to do that. They don't they don't feel they want to do that. And so and if we and if we feel it's a matter of life and death, we'll we'll do it. You know, we, we have a mechanisms for doing it against their will, which is I I really loathe to do because mm. uh, you know it's um, it's never uh, uh, patients feel very upset about it and. Um, uh, you know, and so there's a lot of, uh, you know, cost in terms of the alliant therapeutic alliance. So I, I really would only do it in, in really extreme cases where I thought that, you know, if I didn't do it, the patient, you know, might take their life in uh, the next 24 hours or so. But, you know, with ketamine, for the first time, there's an alternative. And there's an alternative is to, is to, is, is to, is to uh, you know, do a treatment for ketamine. And, and more times than not, when I've done that, it, it's prevented the need to hospitalize them which is like mind-boggling mm. you know just mind-boggling what's um, the hypothesis right now or have we been able to like see like this is what happens in the brain or like what are, what are we seeing why this is working so well so uh as we spoke before we have correlations yeah. um, um and you can look and you can think about it at different levels um from a pharmacological level ketamine works Uh, through a completely different um, set of receptors than the traditional antidepressants. This the, uh, uh, ketamine doesn't bind to a monoamine receptor. It binds to a receptor uh, um, called a, a, a certain type of glutamate receptor. Glutamate is like serotonin and dopamine, another chemical that is used by the brain to communicate between brain cells. In fact, it is probably the most uh um ubiquitous the most prevalent uh, chemical in the brain but but our but our um medications generally haven't tapped into that you know drugs that that until now have 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 uh, modulated that um so it binds to something called the NMDA uh um receptor which is a subtype of a glutamate receptor so there's so you know uh, there's there's um There, there, there's the pharmacological aspect. Um, uh, then there's the sort of brain function level. And we know what happens with, uh, during ketamine is that there is a very different pattern of brain activation that we see. Um, normally, when we are not um, doing 
anything that requires a lot of cognitive uh, um, concentration, um, and we're sort of, you know, we're 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 idling like our car, our brain is idling. Um, it, the brain doesn't actually just kind of go to sleep like your like your computer. Um, it, it actually um, uh, some areas kind of shut down, but then there's certain uh, um, pockets of areas that are connected by a kind of a circuit that are become active. And we call this the default mode network. It was discovered around 15 years ago because we always thought that if you're not doing anything, you're not, you're not watching something, you're not concentrating on something, your kind of brain kind of just goes to sleep. Like, you know, uh, you're, you're setting on your, on your laptop, but we then discovered that it doesn't, it goes into a different mode. this default mode network. And there's a lot of uh, thinking about what the default mode network does, but the current, uh, um, uh, belief is that at least part of its role, it creates this psychological continuity of, of ego, of who you are, you know, this, this unitary uh, being that, that uh, you know, uh, Mads today is the same Mads that was, you know, um, a child, you know, decades ago, that you're the same person that, that you, ha you take up room in, in, in space, um, you have the body. And during ketamine, that default mode network, we don't see it uh, stick standing out in activity, but rather there's a wide, uh, you know, brain-wide activation. And, for, and, and so that could be part of the therapeutic effect. Some people have suggested that what it does is it, um, it allows us to get in touch with ourselves more, you know, by uh, all the areas of the brain being uh, active at once. An, an analogy might be that, you know, if, um, you know, if the, if the freeways were shut down, you know, um, are, you, are you in Copenhagen? Mm, so yes. if the freeways were shut down in Copenhagen uh, and you had to get, you had to go around in your, in your car, you'd have to take all the, you know, we call them surface streets and you'd suddenly get much more familiar with your city because you go through yeah. neighborhoods that you never go, you just pass over them, you know? Um, and suddenly, um, you know, you just feel more connected to, to, you know, your, your uh, fellow citizens and the neighborhoods that you never really got to know. So th that might be part of it. And then the next level we can talk about is the psychological level, which I think is really important because one of the things that happens with ketamine treatments that, is just so different than anything, any almost anything else in psychiatry and medicine, um, is that there is an experience that takes place when you give the medication, and that's why the the, the treatments are generally done in a clinic uh, observed. There's an experience, a mind altering experience. You can call it psychedelic, for lack of a better term. But people will go through a a period of uh, we call a non ordinary state of consciousness. And we think, and most patients will, con will often connect their getting better, their depression getting better, their PTSD, to that experience in some way. And, um, and so that's a fascinating, um, you know, idea and so different than the uh, traditional, you know, Western paradigm of medicine where a person's experience of the treatment isn't that important. It's the medicine, getting to the right place, doing the right thing, and um, 
And so, you know, we tell people, you know, if you take this pill, you can take it before you go to sleep. It's going to go in your body. It's going to fix the, fix whatever needs to be fixed. Um, you can be in a coma and you can get a, a, a doctors can notice that you have a fever and they, then they culture your blood and see, oh, you have a bacterial infection. They can give you an antibiotic intravenously and then the, the, uh, the, the, the infection can be cured. You can wake up from the coma a week later and you never knew that you had the infection. You never knew you were treated. You never was resolved. We didn't, didn't need you to be present. Mm. We just need your body and the medicine and a way to get it in. But here with, with ketamine, if this is in fact the case that the experience is, uh, you know, a key part of the element here, patients need to be present and their and and their state of mind plays a role, and their uh, how they're going into it with what intention, which um, which might explain why we didn't for fifty years have people routinely wake up from surgeries when they got ketamine and say, "Oh my God, my I, I think my PTSD is gone," or you know. So we gave uh, we've given ketamine to millions of patients, certainly hundreds of thousands of patients with PTSD and OCD and depression and anxiety and so forth. But we didn't kind of notice like we did with the tuberculosis drug and uh, that, that suddenly we were getting the side effect. I've heard some, some, some cases of that where I've had patients who said they went to a procedure and they got up and their anxiety was so much better. And they went and they asked the, uh, the surgeon, uh, you know, uh, what did the anesthesiologist give me for that procedure? And it was like ketamine, you know, so... Uh, but for the most part, we didn't see that. It was only when we used lower doses and people stayed awake and experienced it that we had this. So what this means is if we want to get the most out of ketamine, we have to now pay attention to the person's state of mind. Uh, so we have to prepare them for it. We have to put them in a comfortable setting where they're relaxed and the, the, the decor is important, the staff is important. And those are things that, like, you know, didn't matter before. And so if you if you are a kind of doctor that likes to just fix things without having to, you know, pay attention to the, you know, let's say, you know, if you're, you're, you like fixing bones and, you know, uh, patients is out, you don't need to talk to them. You, you, know, you, you fix their bone. Well, you won't like this kind of medicine because it, you know, it's, it's a kind of messy. You have to kind of, and people come in uh, even on two different days, feeling a little bit different and uh, having experienced something different. And, and so, there's less, a lot more variability in their experiences when they come back. Um, but it's a, it's a whole new world. And because of uh, ketamine, um, uh, I wouldn't say just, not just because of that, but there were, at the same time, there was also this, uh, as, you, as you know, this um, uh, uh, renaissance, if you, uh, if you will, of uh, psychic, other psych more classic psychedelic, because we don't, a lot of people are surprised when I call ketamine psychedelic because they think of it as an anesthetic, even though it's, it's known as a dissociative anesthetic. A dissociative means it kind of, kind of puts you out of your body. But it actually has a lot of the classic features of, let's say, LSD or psilocybin, actually. Um, but now um, psychiatry is seeing all this excitement um, because we have drugs that, everybody associates as psychedelics like um, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in uh, psychedelic mushrooms or magic mushrooms, uh, MDMA, which is the active ingredient in 
ecstasy. They're actually being developed under FDA guidance. In fact, the FDA has given them uh, a status of uh, accelerated development because they because they know there's such a need in this uh, field and these things look so good. Which, um, and they're and they're looking really promising. And they have, in some ways, they might have advantages over ketamine in that they may last longer than ketamine uh, because with ketamine we we do need to repeat, and that sometimes is uh, is is problematic because it's not typically covered by insurance. So, and how often a, do you need a, a ketamine treatment? Like, what is it looking right now, and how far would the FDA approvals with ketamine for different things? So, um, it, uh, um, with the um, repetition, it, it varies from patient to patient, and we don't know until we've explored and find the dose that works the best and the longest, and then we have a kind of a patient's duration. So, they may come back once every two months, um, but we've also had, we've seen where, where people have had the most amazing benefits, where they said, you know, in my 20 years of you know, struggling with depression, nothing has worked like this. And I feel like I'm remembering what it's like to be normal. But sadly, uh, it may only last for five days and nothing we can do can, can, can make it last. So that's kind of one of those unfortunate things. Now, generally, that wouldn't be such a problem if you had to, it's a little bit inconvenient because you have to come and get it done. But it wouldn't be a problem if, if insurance in the United States would cover it. But it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is just a... Um, a system issue the insurance companies as a rule only will cover things that are fda approved and the fda will only approve things they don't go out looking for good things to approve you have to apply and do very expensive studies even if it's already been kind of demonstrated in other studies to to their level of uh, scrutiny and those cost hundreds of millions of dollars and because ketamine was already for depression was already in public domain old drug was already kind of out there there was no patent no company want, was willing to go and and get ketamine approved uh, for uh, if they they're not going to be able to control the rights because the next day and a company can market it generically so so we've got this breakthrough medication that could make a huge dent um, it's actually the medication itself is, is quite inexpensive because it's generic, but, um, the treatment is a little bit costs a little bit because it has to be monitored and, you know, in a setting and so forth. But, um, but the FDA, but the patients can't get insurance coverage. So we're limited to only those people who can, who can do it, you know, privately. And, uh, there is a, there is a product now from Johnson Johnson called Spravato, which is a kind of, a um, uh, an approach where they said, what's the, what's the minimum we need to change uh, ketamine infusions um, so that it's different enough we can get a, a patent, but it'll be close enough that it's going to, you know, we can be pretty sure it works. So what they did is they went, took ketamine and, uh, and tweaked it to S-ketamine, which is a very uh, uh, probably not, not, uh, inconsequential uh, modification uh, and then they also proposed S-ketamine in a, uh, in, uh, administered nasally uh, for depression. Um, and that was good enough to get a patent. And they spent, uh, I've, I've, I've heard like $350 million to do several studies and they got it approved. Although it was controversial because the nasal spray doesn't, it doesn't produce the same blood levels and the effect sizes 
that uh, we saw in the in the uh, Spravato pivotal studies were small, much smaller than the ketamine studies, and in fact, some of them failed. But the FDA recognizes that you know uh, we need ketamine such a a breakthrough that you know this is as good as we've got for now, and they approved it. Um, so we're starting to make some progress. So ketamine, so Spravato is not exactly ketamine, but it is ketamine-like, and it is being covered by a lot of insurances. That that's a big breakthrough because you know ketamine can be wonderful, but if you can't access it, it's not wonderful for you. So uh, Spravato may be less effective, but if you can access it, that's better than a drug that you, that's better that you can access. So. We're making some some progress there, but I think um, I think what's what's really exciting is is that if you look at the startups, and I know you're very interested in startups. Um, there's I, I think that I think the, the the investment world sees that there's a disruptive uh, a situation occurring in mental health, and s these these new generation uh, drugs that work through creating an experience are, are going to be uh, a paradigm shift. And I think there's huge, huge uh, influx of, of interest uh, by entrepreneurs and investment by investors um, to, to develop multiple different psychedelic drugs and to develop apps that kind of Will, will facilitate the treatment and to think about all the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the landscape um, uh, of, of doing psychedelics in an efficient way because it is such a different, uh, we're going to have to figure out how to do it effectively because, um, you know, a trip that's six hours long with psilocybin and, and right now the paradigm has been two therapists sitting in is not very... Uh, uh, you know, efficient. Let's put, put it that way. It costs money. <laughs> so, it costs so, uh, money. Yeah. So we're yeah, working on seeing. It's definitely a scene that's attracting a lot of uh, capital right now. If we're just seeing like the result seems to be good, and it's, it's interesting as you're saying, like a, a general problem with like ketamine is like a generic drug now. So there's just no interest in actually or no incentive to pay all that money to do the research to get it uh, approved which I think is a challenge with many of also like the med like the natural things that we discovered that we, then we make a drug that has the same kind of effects as you're saying here, but it might not be right. as effective as yes. the natural thing. And we could have just given the natural thing much cheaper. Um, yeah. But now we got a company that can kind of change it a little bit and then they can get a, get it approved and they can start marketing, right? So it's a, it's a right. general problem we have in our healthcare system. Yeah. I wish, I wish, I wish the, the, um, uh, the, the, you know, governmental agencies who would recognize this problem and 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 put a send out a patch, you know, mm. to, to to fix that because you know um, these are all like, for example, the FDA approval process came out of a, you know good intentions, you know, to but it created its own you know barriers in some way, kind of odd barriers like we were talking about um, with the uh, you know in the patent system, and when you put it all together, you have this. You have this unintended consequences of a simple drug that could make a difference, but just can't get it, can't make it, you know, widely distributed or economically feasible. Um, and I wish there was, um, you know, rather than um, just, you know, kind of uh, creating these alternatives, 
that 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 there would be mechanisms where where the, uh, you know the that would incentivize people that they can they go ahead and develop these more simple approaches that um, would still be feasible and not just lose money on them. So maybe that'll happen. Sure, I hope so. Me too. David, time is running. Uh, I yeah. would love to probably get you back on the show one day to talk more about psychedelics and like where we're going and like what is the future and like what steps do we need to go through to get this more proved and both like in a medical sense, but also for like normal people because there's the whole microdosing and like this yep. so many things that's opening up. I'm very conservative um, because I want to see things, especially with my brain. I don't want to risk anything with my brain. <laughs> um, but I'm so curious about all the things that we can actually do to enhance our brain as well. Um, uh, but I yeah, think we can talk for hours more to uh, to get deeper into that. Yeah, I certainly could. It's fascinating and it's uh, it's it's very exciting time in the field. And um, I'd be happy to 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 come back and uh, and and fill in the gaps. That'd be fantastic. Where can people find out more about you? You, you, they can they can visit um, my my uh, clinic's website, uh, which is uh, it's, the clinic's name is called Kadima Neuropsychiatry Institute, and the website is uh, K A D I M A N like Nancy P like Paul dot com. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Do you Excellent. are you on any social media where you're sharing like Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, TikTok, doing dances about the brain or <laughs> uh, not 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 as much on those things yet. But uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Mike, we can we can add those uh, those li links as well. Sure, I'll make sure to. I always end up asking the guests um, like one to three advice about how to live a happy, healthy, and meaningful life. Well, uh, that's that's a pretty um, uh, uh, ambitious. Um, I think um, you know, for me, um, first of all, I mean, I, I would say that if you suffer from a diagnosable mental illness, you know, um, you you should uh, you know take heart in in the, in the uh, times that we're in and the exciting things that are uh, happening. So I think um, I, I deal with a lot of patients who hope is, is a, is a big issue. They, it's very hard to be hopeful because they've, you know, they've been trying to get better for so long and they try one antidepressant or one, you know, medication after another. But, you know, I tell them this is, <laughs> if, if you're going to have to have a mental illness, it's, it's finally a really, uh, um, good time or a good promising time because in within the next 10 years you can expect to have really new, new things so i think being uh, being aware of, of uh of what's out there but i think that we we do know that for general people a couple a couple things uh you know vigorous exercise meditation uh socialization you know we are social people and um And uh, generally that, you know, it's our network that kind of uh, is a, is a uh, mediator of our uh, mental health. Um, th those, those are the things that, that one needs to pay attention to. Um, and the research has shown, you know, is a buffer. When I get patients well, I say, you don't want to rely on ketamine or TMS 
now that you're well, you need to do the things that we know are going to be like a, a layers of body armor for you that, yeah, you couldn't, when you're so shut down, you just can't exercise. It just feels like, you know, it's like they're climbing Mount Everest just to get out of the house. But now that you're, you're better, you know, these are the things that are going to keep you better. You don't want to rely on pharmacology or something like mm -hmm. that. So I think that, you know, we are definitely seeing the, you know, the right foods, uh, exercise, meditation, uh, and, uh, you know, and, um, your, your, your social network, uh, you know, uh, nurturing that, uh, you know, uh, having, being part of a community. One of the things that has occurred to you met the human species is, and I think it's a big reason why mental illness we see in depression, uh, increasing, especially in countries that are developing, you know, from, third world to second world to first world is that uh, we, 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 we went from a more um, uh, tribal, let's say, you know, family oriented uh, groups where everyone knew everybody and, um, uh, and everyone supported everybody to these more impersonal, um, uh, highly mobile uh, societies where, you know, you may be separated from everybody else and, Raising, you know, I, I always think about uh, young children, uh, young mothers. Uh, I have a daughter who is a is a first time young mother, and I remember when my when my wife uh, was uh, uh, a first time mother when we had we had left our family in Canada and come to the United States, and uh, you know, and it's very difficult uh, being isolated, and you know, it's it's not an easy time when you have a young child. Um, and, and, you know, 150 years ago, most people would have been in a small town or village and they would have had their grandparents there and their siblings and uh, neighbors. And, you know, you, you know, you had somebody to, 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 to give, give your baby to for, um, you know, uh, several hours. And uh, we've, we've been stripped of all that, that, mm -hmm. that sense of network. And I think that has, that has made us more vulnerable to, to anxiety and depression and um, uh, we don't enjoy the simple things anymore. It's all about achievement, and you know that never ends. So I, I, I probably um, I shouldn't talk because that's <laughs> I probably fall. My, you know, my family would say that that probably I fall into that category. But for me, it, it's uh, you know it's not stress. I kind of I, I thrive off of that. But that but that's not usually the case. So we need to have a little bit more of a balance. I think. I, think so I don't know good. if those were. I don't know if those are three recommendations or, or, or uh, one very long one. <laughs> it's definitely useful, um, and it's something. It's interesting whether I talk to uh, psychologists, uh, medical doctors, uh, athletes. Um, it's many of the same things people come back to. It's enjoying the small things. It's Absolutely. a good community. Yeah. It's doing some exercises, meditation. It's being curious. Um, yep. and learning new things like you're saying being hopeful mm -hmm. uh, if you're in a tough spot um, yep. time will often come with new solutions and you will feel better right so, and gr uh, gratitude i think is also a big thing that's something that's not easy for us to hold in, in our minds because we tend to be more aware and affected by the uh, the, the, the the you know uh, slings and arrows that we experience and and, and uh, we kind of uh, get used to all the accomplishments and blessings and so forth they, they become the background 
And so then all we're aware of is uh, the, the hits that we take mm. every day. Um, and, and so it's really important, I think, for us to take a step back and, and, and think about, uh, you know, um, uh, how lucky we really are uh, to live in uh, uh, this time with all the kind of like, you know, we, you, the news tends to emphasize, you know, the margin at which the good ends and where our, our threats are. But in, in relatively speaking, I mean, you know, uh, we, we, we've come a long way in many, in, in many respects and everyone has personal reasons, I think, to be uh, grateful. I agree. Okay. David? Yeah. I really enjoyed this uh, talk. It was kind of like I predicted the uh, time would fly a bit fast. I think this is actually the longest episode. I, I normally try and keep them to like maximum hour, but um, yeah, it was too fascinating to talk to you about all this stuff. And I still feel like I'm missing another five hours to just <laughs> dig in, into all of these topics. But um, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to get on the My show. My pleasure. I appreciate you, uh, uh, you know, creating podcasts like this that are so important and inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.